welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Today is March 25th, 2020, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Today we are starting a series that hopefully will not last forever, but we know is so important in this time of a pandemic of COVID-19 that our world is going through. And so today we have a double episode for you, starting off with Dr. Rick and Lynn Beckett, helping us determine how we can help our children during this unparalleled time that's going on in our country and around the world, helping you know what resources you can use with your adopted and foster children. And I want to encourage you to hang on after the interview with Dr. Rick and Lynn, which is a little lengthier than normal, because then we'll have another lengthy conversation with Dr. Adam White. Adam White is a physician, an ER physician in Colbert County, Georgia, and he and his wife, Whitney, have served with Lifeline for many years. And and Adam uh, actually has a fellowship in tropical diseases and has also spent some time looking over uh, infectious disease. And he has some great things and some great uh, pointers for us uh, about COVID-19, how we can help uh, stop the spread of COVID-19, how we can respond as believers to COVID-19. And so this this episode of Defender Podcast is not just a double episode, it's triple to almost quadruple the time and length that you're using. This is some important content, both for your family, but also for our world as we go through this COVID-19 outbreak. And so without further ado, let's join with our interview with Dr. Rick and Lynn Beckett. Well, what an honor it is to be joined for the Defender Podcast by Lynn Beckett and Dr. Rick. Uh, we are just coming together on, a, on an abnormal Defender Podcast because we're living through abnormal times through the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know for many families and many listeners of Defender Podcast, your normal has been interrupted because now you have your children at home, your activities have been canceled, your schedule has been altered. And certainly we've had Lynn and Dr. Rick on before to talk about how to care for your children during either Christmas holidays or through the summer when that predictable schedule has been interrupted. But certainly we have seen and already heard from families where this was an interruption you weren't planning. It was an interruption that you weren't expecting expecting and you didn't foresee. And now all of a sudden, not only do you have an interruption because there's no schedule, but now you have an interruption because everything that your children have known in some regards have evaporated, at least for the short term. And so we know that families are going through stress and we know that families are going through times of just questioning uh, what should we do and how should we respond. And Lynn, you have been such a a great asset uh, to so many families through coaching and just helping those families that have gone through tough and turbulent times. And so as parents that uh, are obviously expecting now stress of the sudden change, uh, how have you seen that affect children and how would you counsel parents to handle that stress of this interrupted schedule that we're now all experiencing? Yeah, Herbie, you know, this, this is a, complete unknown for so many of us. And that unpredictability of what has happened has thrown us all for a loop. We're all kind of um, 
trying to get our feet back under us and kind of reestablish the new normal. So with parents working from home and trying to juggle that and then school assignments that are being sent home, um, it's a real challenge for parents. So I think the first thing that I would challenge parents to do is to really kind of do a little bit of self-examination because we know that our children pick up on um, the anxiety they may feel from us. So Dr. Gary Landreth talks about, do we want to be the thermometer or the thermostat? So the thermometer simply measures the tone of the home where the thermostat is actually setting the temperature of the home. So as parents, we really need to make sure that we're managing our own anxiety and fears and worries well so that we're modeling this for our children and so that they're not picking up on maybe some tension that we're feeling within ourselves. The other thing that I think that we need to do is try to make life, um, even in the midst of this unpredictability, um, as predictable as possible. We know that our kids thrive on schedule and routine, and that's been blown out of the water at this point. So as much as possible, if we can um, reestablish some type of routine and predictability within our day, that doesn't mean a, a hard structure of eight o'clock we're doing this and at 9 a.m. We're, we're on to this activity, but if we can establish a routine and a rhythm of the day where we're having a meal and then maybe learning time and lunch and then maybe free, free time in the afternoon with art and play, developing that rhythm of the day, I think will help um, provide some normalcy for everybody going forward. We know that one of the huge things for our kids is safety and feeling safe. And I think for most of us right now, if we're honest, we don't feel safe. And so making sure that we are aware that even though we're telling our children that they're safe, that the coronavirus is not going to attack them, um, and that it's not as serious for younger people and middle-aged people, um, we need to make sure that they don't just know that they're safe, but they actually feel that they're safe. And that may mean that we pull them a little closer to us throughout the day. I think about that verse where God talks about covering us under his wing. He pulls us closer uh, during those times of anxiousness so that we feel safe. So I think we need to apply that principle of pulling our, our children closer to us during this time of uncertainty. And Lynn, I, I, as I even think of some of the things that you're saying, I, I know certainly we want to care for those kids, especially those who uh, have have had already maybe some attachment issues or or who've had some um, you know issues with with trauma in their background. And, and we know all of these kids have to an extent, but but we also know that so many of our kids and maybe even our older kids are grieving the loss of. Uh, sporting events or, or grieving the loss of activities or grieving even the loss of graduation potentially. And I know as parents sometimes uh, when we're grieving or we're worrying with the anxiety of 
you know, a stock market that's going down and, and potentially loss of jobs or uncertain ability in our small business or in our own jobs, how would you encourage parents to allow your children to grieve the loss of the things that they've lost and acknowledge that loss and sit in it, even if as a parent, you think there are bigger things to worry about? Right, absolutely. That is a great question because the emotional component of this is so important for all of our children and making sure that we're connecting with our children on that emotional level and that we're validating their feelings, those feelings of fear, of anxiety, and of grief and loss, like you mentioned. So, you know, some of the ways that we can do that is simply through discussion and talking about how are you feeling? Uh, what is going on? Talking about, um, you know, just validating that, yeah, this really is disappointing. And how do we handle disappointment? I think for parents, they need to be aware of how their children respond to stress. So we know that some, you know, we know those three fight, flight, or freeze responses. So think about how your child responds to stress and then be looking for those responses throughout the day that your children may be exhibiting. For many of our children, they can't verbalize their feelings. So you may see <clears throat> some psychosomatic things emerge. So your kids may start having more headaches than usual, or they might start developing tummy aches. And that might be a sign that your child is having some big, huge emotional responses to the stress that is going on right now. And for our teens, helping them validate those losses and trying to think of creative ways that maybe we can fill in the gaps of those missed opportunities. And I think, you know, so many times as parents, we try to limit technology for our kids. And this may be a time where we need to loosen that a little bit because we know that during the teen years, those peer relationships are so critical. Um, and having uh, more tech time, more FaceTime, more iPad time where they can connect with their peers so they can kind of process those losses with their peers and maybe even come up with creative ways of how they can have a virtual graduation among their friends or a virtual prom um, um, on that night when that event was supposed to take place and being creative with those types of things. And to Dr. Rick, uh, I mean, Lynn has given us so many great practical steps, even just to begin with. But I know that uh, you have some firsthand uh, experience with children that do process things a little bit differently and ask a lot of questions and sometimes are prone to a little anxiety and uh, love their routine. What are some practical ways that, one, uh, you and Denise have been able to work through that with, mm -hmm. with Eric and Nicholas. And what are some firsthand just exhibit some things that your kids have exhibited that maybe families could be looking for? Yeah. What, so Herbie, I'll, I'll kind of even just go in a little bit of a different direction just to say that, um, you know, one of the things Denise and I have as part of our past is, is living through Hurricane Katrina yeah. and, and being parents through Hurricane Katrina. And so we were in a, you know, we were in a circumstance where everything changed for us, you know, really unexpectedly in a, in a matter of, you know, in a matter of a couple of days. And it was, it was change and, and upheaval that lasted for a year. 
uh, as we were displaced. And, and so um, there's a lot that, that really honestly feels very familiar right now about the things that we walked through and, and the things that we experienced during Katrina. Um, I think one of the things we learned then and something that we, you know, that we are, are being reminded of and are, are trying to practice now is um, with all of the uncertainty, really helping to focus on certainty with our kids. And, and so there are, there are things, there are questions we can answer about the future and about the virus and all kinds of things, but there are, but there are certainly questions we can answer. We can stop and, and, you know, and, and point back to, and we can tell stories about, um, you know, where we've seen God's sovereignty, you know, in dramatic ways in our family, we can, we can, talk and, and sit and share with our kids about how we've seen, you know, God provide for us in times where, um, you know, we were living in the midst of uncertainty. And I think all of us have those kind of stories and, and we want to be careful to, um, to focus on, on that assurance and that certainty in the midst of, you know, a, a time of, of uncertainty. I think one of the things we're, you know, this is, this is just very vulnerable. And this is, this is today in our house. Um, we are the, the repeated questions, um, just question after question, after question, after question. And the truth is, um, you know, asking the question really sometimes right after we've just given the answer for it. And, and it's just over and over and over. And, and, and what, you know, what we understand is, is there's, there's a fixation that's, that's going on there and a, and, a, and a preoccupation. And, and we really have to work hard to hold our frustration in check. Um, and, and to not just kind of spin things up and spin things out of control. Um, but also really, you know, realizing that part of our, part of our responsibility in that again is, is refocusing at times. And, and focusing on what's safe, focusing on what's true, focusing on how, you know, how we're living and how we're responding to, you know, to the circumstances around us, um, but also focusing on the fact that, you know, that, that God is not off his throne and that, mm. that, that God, hasn't, God hasn't wavered. And, and just because we're in the middle of a circumstance that right now makes us feel unsafe um, doesn't mean that we are unsafe. And so really, you know, kind of assuring our kids of, of that safety and that security is just, um, you know, it's, it's super important. Um, I, th- I think also, you know, and, and I, I think I like, and, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with Lynn because I do think technology is incredibly important at this time. And I think connectivity and community through technology is incredibly important. I think it's also being judicious about what sort of technology we let our kids mm-hmm um, to, you know, to consume. Um, there is so much conflicting information and there is so much that's happening around us that is sensationalized at this point and, and, and really, you know, playing on emotions is that, you know, we've really, we've really realized that, um, that we have to be more present and, and more active and participating in, the consumption of those things with our kids. And so, you know, some of that is like turning the, you know, turning the TVs off in other places in the house and, and only allowing an option where if we're going to, if we're going to watch the news or we're going to watch something like that, we're going to watch it together so that we have an opportunity to talk about it. And, and we have an opportunity to sort of, you know, process out loud. Um, 
And maybe the last thing I think is that, um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot in this, you know, model and I would hold my hand up and do this if, if, if we were on a, a video podcast, but this idea of, you know, having our lids flipped, you know, this idea of, of sometimes we, you know, anxiety just kind of takes over and rules the day. And, um, and I think realizing that, um, one of the gifts that we have in, in, in the way that most of us are having to adjust and live in this is we have time. We, we have more time to be present with each other. We have more time to, you know, to sort of walk out and, and, and deal with difficult things. And, and we need to take advantage of the time that the Lord has blessed us to have. And so sometimes that means that when there's, when, when one of our kids has flipped their lid or maybe when we flipped ours and, and we're under stress is to realize that we don't have to just press in and go harder at that point. Um, we don't have to, we don't have to fix it right in that moment. And that, that rather than like watching the emotion kind of spin up and spin out and, and us getting into a worse place, um, we need to take advantage of the fact that, that the questions that are, that are plaguing or the, the or the thing that's difficult, it's going to be here five minutes from now or 10 minutes from now or 15 minutes from now or whatever. And that part of social distancing maybe in our homes is that we need to be less social and distance ourselves for a few minutes when we're in those, you know, kind of those moments of upheaval and, and, and really kind of let everybody return back to normal. Um, so that we really can then dig in and be, you know, be more reasonable and, and be more measured in the way that we, um, you know, in the way that we encounter those things with our kids. Yeah. And so I, I have an opportunity to teach ninth grade boys, small group and in the social distancing environment, we were doing that online on Sunday. And, and one of the things that one of the co-leaders prayed for to close our time out, which I thought was so apropos and, it was one of those moments that even in the prayer, I'm like, oh, I got to write that down, <laughs> was, uh, I mean, he prayed that we would not waste the COVID-19 mm. uh, virus mm. uh, and that, you know, it's here. So praying against it, it's too late. Uh, it, we have it. Let's not waste it and waste those opportunities. And, and, and for one opportunity that we do have is we have opportunities to pour into our children, get to know their hearts, get to know them in ways that we've never known. Now, certainly, like you said, Dr. Rick, some of that may want us to social distance in bedrooms for a second, <laughs> uh, right? But it also gives us opportunity to really press in and get to know our kids, get to know their, their hearts, get to know their wants, get to know their desires, so that we can even more uh, better, you know, disciple them. And, you know, I think one of the things I would just encourage parents is no matter where your kids come from, no matter what they're going through, one day they're going to be asked, what happened? What was it like during the COVID-19 pandemic? And I hope and I pray that we're able to answer things that are life-giving, life-affirming, that are, are disciple-making, uh, that, that is, is, is full of the edification of the Lord, learning and teaching scripture, memorizing scripture, um, and spending time getting to know one another. But also, Lynn, I, I know that, like we said, uh, being being confined to a small space for a long period of time, certainly with our trauma-informed kids, can create all types of behaviors. And so I know our team has spent a lot of time in TBRI and trauma-informed principles. How do you see these things helping us guide and counsel these families during these turbulent times? Right. One of the things um, I think that you're right about is that 
some of the behaviors that parents haven't seen for a while may reappear uh, because of the stressful situation. So it's likely that we might see a regression in behaviors and a reappearance of some things like maybe food issues. Um, we want to make sure that uh, we don't make that an issue with our kids because many of our kids came from places of food insecurity. So we want to make sure food issues may be a problem again, sleeping may be an issue again. So we do have on our website a resource page where there are many articles that are addressing things like food and sleep, anxiety, manipulation and control, things like that, that may reappear for our families. So if they go to lifelinechild.org backslash resources, they can find some articles there that they might find helpful. And uh, one of the TBRI principles is uh, giving children control. And some of those things that Rick was mentioning earlier is giving them the facts and the information that we know are true. And there are some things that we know that we can control that will help with the situation and reminding the children about that. You know, we're, we can wash our hands for protection. We're doing the social distancing. Some of those things are things that help us to have some control and some protection over the situation. And then also entering, you know, giving your child some control over their daily schedule of, you know, what foods would they like to have? What uh, clothing would they like to wear? What activities and what order their activities are in would help them restore a sense of safety and feelings of control in that way. But certainly something that you both hit on is fun and we need to be taking advantage of this opportunity of building relationships and having fun together. And we know that play is a huge component for children in helping them process their stress and process what's going on with them. So let's make sure that we are pulling out those old board games and those old activities and um, sitting down together and playing with our children and having fun with them. Movement is huge, and so getting outside when we can uh, will help um, decrease everybody's stress. So having some good, big, large muscle movement is going to help. On those rainy days, um, having some good inside crash and bump rooms where maybe we actually do jump on the bed to relieve ourselves a little bit of some uh, stress, um, if that helps get some big muscle movement in or pull the mattress off the floor and jump on the floor with it. But some things like that are those good old TBRI principles that uh, will help uh, relieve stress and keep our kids on track with their behaviors. Um, there's a great uh, gal who's written a book called Listening to My Body, and she has a free resource online. Her name is GabbyGarciaBooks.com, and she has a great little printable handout on listening to my body that might help parents help their kids connect with what's going inside and opening up those discussions. And um, 
since we're not all having to leave the dinner table quickly to get to baseball practices and ballet practices and other extracurricular activities right now, um, I'd encourage everybody to download from Lifeline's website from our store, the well-known resource. This was um, a adoptive and foster family edition booklet of questions that you can ask and activities that families can do together. This was developed by Lifeline staff specifically for adoptive and foster families. And so now that we have this extra time on our hands, it would be a great tool for families to use to connect in that way. Yeah, and one of the things, Lynn, too, that certainly we've been promoting and are going to continue to promote is parent coaching. And that's something that you oversee for us. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is parent coaching and how would I know if that's something that I need? Right. So parent coaching is just as simple as um, working with Lifeline staff to just brainstorm on any behavioral challenges that you might be facing as a parent. Um, and these are sessions that can be done over the phone, uh, through web resources like Skype and Facebook, uh, where we just kind of pick the challenge of the moment and brainstorm on what might be going on with your child and what are some strategies that we might be able to put in place to help in that moment. Yeah, and Dr. Rick, I know that one of our hearts as a ministry is that we want to be present and available for families and churches. And certainly these are realities that families are experiencing, but it's also something we want to equip churches to be there on the front lines to care for these adopted and foster families during these times. Will you just tell us some of the other ways and other resources that Lifeline has produced that your team is continuing to produce to help families uh, thrive and survive during this turbulent time? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Herbie, as we've talked about um, just the things that the Lord has privileged us to know and have and build over the last, you know, several years, um, it, it seems like an appropriate time for us to be able to share that with, you know, the whole body of Christ. And I think there's so many of these resources that um, you don't have to have a child coming from a hard place in your home in order for these things to be relevant. Um, because the truth is there's some level of upheaval and trauma that comes just with the circumstance we find ourselves in. And, you know, we want to be available to, to churches and pastors to say, uh, you know, at a time where you may be overwhelmed in trying to meet the needs of your congregation in a variety of ways, uh, there are things Lifeline can do to come alongside and, and to help, you know, lift a burden. And so, you know, as, as Lynn's talked about parent coaching and, you know, the opportunity there, that's, that's not just for adoptive and foster families. There, you know, there are parents that are kind of at loose ends today. Um, you know, we, you and I heard earlier this week that, um, that there are more uh, voluntary relinquishments into foster care have skyrocketed uh, in the last, uh, you know, seven to 10 days as, as we begun to shelter in. And there are a lot of families that are out there that are struggling about how to meet the needs of their kids and about how to, you know, have peace in their home and, and those kinds of things. And, and, and parent coaching is a, is a great option. It's a service that, you know, we can provide to have someone come alongside and really talk about parenting techniques and, and about how to, you know, really how to take, um, some of the difficulty out of, you know, out of the home. We want to, we want to share one, one great thing that folks can do is, um, 
go to lifelinechild.org and, and sign up for our regular emails. Um, we're, we're making an effort to push out content almost on a daily basis now um, where we're putting uh, videos and articles and things out that are designed to give parents tips in, uh, in ways to approach certain behaviors and ways to, to do certain, you know, profitable things with their kids. And, and it comes from the basis of um, trust-based relational intervention and trauma-informed care and, and those things. But at the end of the day, most of it's just, it's just good parenting. They're just, you know, they, they're techniques that work and it's not necessarily because, you know, there's something traumatic in a child's background that makes it helpful and beneficial. Um, you know, we're, um, we have a library of stuff that we've put together over the last several years that is available on demand. So if you go to lifelinechild.org uh, backslash resources, um, there is a categorized listing of, um, of resources that are available. And these are videos and blog articles and, and all kinds of things, worksheets that are there for families and they address, um, you know, just a ton of different situations and different, different behaviors, um, that, you know, that kids may be facing. Um, we also, you know, one of the, one of the results of, um, some of the changes because of COVID, um, we're seeing some of the, 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 the regulations around counseling and around telecounseling that are, that are being relaxed. And so literally our counseling services in the States where we have counselors, is more available today than it ever has been. And so if your family is in a position where, you know, you think talking to someone and having someone dig in a little more deeply um, with your kids and with you, um, we have, we have therapists that are, that are coming from a Christ in a worldview and are, um, you know, and are, and are trying to go uh, deeply into, um, you know, helping us be reflective and helping us talk out and, and bring to the surface things that would be, um, beneficial. And so that's, you know, that's a bunch of, of ways that, that are, um, that are kind of, I guess, almost intervention related or whatever situationally. There, there's some other things that we're trying to do that are just, um, that, that are just good activities, you know, for us to do together. And so um, there's this, uh, there's this thing that we started a few years ago, really pointed toward children's programming in churches called Mission Kid. Um, and Mission Kids basically helping to engage kids in the church in, uh, in uh, care for vulnerable children and like how they can be a part of praying for and giving to and, and, uh, and, and contributing into the needs of orphan vulnerable children around the world. Um, this year, we've, we've focused on the country of Liberia. And, uh, and one of the adjustments we've made to our, our Mission Kid curriculum is we've made it uh, really accessible for families to be able to do in their own homes uh, during, the, you know, during the time that we're sheltering in for COVID. And so uh, if you go to lifelinechild.org uh, backslash Mission Kid, um, you'll find the resources there. You can sign up and we'll send them to you and they actually can be tailored for you as a parent to use those within, uh, you know, within your own family. So um, I, I think, you know, th that is, um, you know, that is certainly something that we, you know, we want to think toward doing is, is leveraging the opportunities that we have um, while our kids are at home to, to be intentional about how we disciple them you know, and, and be intentional about how we're investing the word and, and, and how we're going deep and hopefully mission kid can, you know, can really help with that agenda. Um, 
last couple of things, and I know this is like a long list, but, but it's, but I think all of these are things that have, um, you know, different intersection points for different people and, and different churches. A um, couple of things that we have, have put out there for churches that I think are, are things that we don't want to forget um, in the midst of trying to respond to, uh, you know, we're trying to respond to our own needs and to our own people. One of them is a video series called Equipped to Love. Um, it's actually available on our website, or if your church subscribes to Right Now Media, you can just go in and search Equipped to Love, and all the Equipped to Love videos are, are right there uh, in Right Now Media as well. But that's really, that's a way for us as extended family and friends and church workers and people that are, that are coming around families who have kids that are coming from hard places to know really how to help and, and know how to, to live profitably and how to contribute to kids, um, you know, finding safety and security and, and, and ultimately, um, you know, melding into their families well. And, you know, there's going to come a point in the midst of all this where um, COVID is going to be over. And, and as a church, we, you know, we're going to begin to return to normal. And, and I think one of the things we can anticipate as, as we move back to gathering together again is there are going to be people that are going to have trauma needs. And there are going to be kids that are going to have trauma needs. And, and we need to know how to be ready to receive those kids and about how to, how to care for them well within the church. And Equipped to Love is, is just that. It's just a, a blueprint of, of like the small tweaks and changes that we can make within the body of Christ in order to really, you know, care for these kids well and, and love them well um, when there are some, you know, traumatic events or, or difficulties or neglect that, that are in their background. And then finally, man, I, I think the, the last, um, we, we've put out a, a, a series of, uh, of resources called Fostering Hope. Um, and it's really just our effort to, to help churches to be onboarded well into the foster care crisis. Um, and, and something, as I said earlier, when, you know, about the voluntary relinquishments that are going on in the foster care system, um, this, this stress on our country and this stress on families is, is likely going to result in, in a, in a major uptick in kids that are coming into state care and into families that, that need intervention. And we, as the church have to be ready to, to meet that need, um, you know, part of it, I'm sure you're going to hit this on a, on a subsequent episode, but we're, you know, we're, we're doing things right now to begin to, you know, train foster families and to provide CEUs for foster families and things during, you know, during COVID. Um, but we also want to be ready to mobilize the church to, to be out there to provide homes for foster families and to care for birth families who are in danger of their kids going into care or have the opportunity to, to receive their kids um, and, and be re reunified with their kids from the system and fostering hope addresses all of that. And so we, you know, we have an opportunity to train and, and part of this is like foster parenting from a biblical worldview. How do you use your home and how do you use bringing a child into temporary care as a platform for the gospel? And we, you know, do that. And so I just, man, I hope we, this is, this feels a little bit like taking a drink out of a fire hose and, and there's just a lot of resources that we've talked about, but at the end of the day, um, we know that different people have different contexts and have different callings. And, and we believe God's given us a moment of opportunity. 
um, and that this is not something that um, obviously that took God by surprise. Um, this is not something that has, you know, that has rocked the kingdom off of its foundations. And, and the agenda for us to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth hadn't changed. And, uh, and so part of that means that we take the circumstances that are in front of us and, and we leverage them to the fullest in order to be able to point people to Jesus. And we just want to do that in as many ways as we possibly can to be helpful um, to support families and to support churches. Yeah. Well, amen. Well, Dr. Rick and Lynn, we thank you. Uh, as we close, Lynn, if folks are interested in parent coaching, how can they get in contact with you or how can they sign up for parent coaching? I, I believe they can go on our website, lifelinechild.org backslash parent coaching, and that will give them a link to complete that will push an email onto our staff. Yeah, and as you are listening to this podcast, we want you to know that we really do want to be here to help you during this time. This is a time that is different and difficult for everyone. We don't know what to expect. We don't know what the future holds. But, beloved, we do know who holds the future, and we want to do as much as we can to help you disciple your family, to trust in the God that holds the future that's bigger than COVID-19, that's bigger than a virus, and that's bigger than the difficulties that are uh, that are assaulting our families. And so we will get through this and we want to join forces with you with the hope of the gospel so that we can truly make a difference and manifest the gospel in the lives of orphans and vulnerable children. We're so thankful for Dr. Rick and for Lynn and for the wise counsel that they were able to give us. And hopefully this information is useful to families as they are navigating, caring for their children during this difficult time, talking to their children during this difficult time, and ultimately uh, helping their children be able to process. If you need the help that Dr. Rick and Lynn talked about, please reach out to us. You can always get uh, contact with us at info at lifelinechild.org or by going to our website at lifelinechild.org. Before we listen to Adam White's interview, I want to remind you that every day, Lifeline's pregnancy counselor talks with women who have both physical and spiritual needs. Many of them struggle to meet those needs, and it's especially hard while we're going through this pandemic of COVID-19. Many uh, women have lost jobs. Many women have lost the support. And we recognize that we are still called to minister to the whole person and care for and meet the spiritual needs of these women. The Lord is giving us unprecedented opportunities to share the gospel with these women. Also be praying for our birth mother counselors and these women as they go into hospitals uh, where there's so much infection, but where they must go in order to get the prenatal care that they need, as well as for the delivery. But in light of the truth of these physical needs of these women, we have established the well as a new lifeline fund to help meet the physical needs of women in unexpected pregnancies. You can find more information and donate to the well fund at lifelinechild.org backslash the well. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash the well. And let me let you know that the needs are greater now because of COVID-19 and we need your support in ways that we've never needed your support. So please uh, give to initiatives like the well and to the general fund at Lifeline as we continue to stay on the front lines, caring for vulnerable children, vulnerable women and vulnerable families and manifesting the beautiful hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now without further ado, I hope that you will enjoy this next interview with Dr. Adam White as we talk about COVID-19, how it started, how we can help stop the spread and what to look for in symptoms and how we can protect our children and our families, especially those children and family members that are at high risk or immunocompromised. 
Well, I'm abundantly grateful to have Dr. Adam White join us for the Defender podcast. And Adam is a medical doctor uh, practicing in the Athens, Georgia area. But Adam is special to our family here at Lifeline because his wife, Whitney, is one of our dynamic counselors. But more importantly, she really self-pioneered our education program, was one of the first that we had to get TBRI trained. Uh, I remember the first time Whitney White came and interviewed for a job at Lifeline. She said, I'd love to meet with people, but don't make me do research. And the very first thing we did is we made her do research. But man, that research has paid off. And so many of our families, from our foster families to our adoptive families to families around the world, uh, have been just a, a receiver uh, and a beneficiary of that research that she has done and now of her counsel and of her training. And so we're grateful for the White family, for Whitney, and certainly for Adam. Adam and Whitney have two children, Judson, uh, who is their son, and then Micah, who was just recently born, their little girl. And like I said, they live in Athens, Georgia, where Adam is an emergency medicine doctor. He uh, is an ER physician. And one of the reasons I really wanted Adam to talk to us is because as he was going through medical school and his fellowship at the University of Alabama Birmingham Medical School, uh, he was able to do a fellowship in global health, tropical medicine, and uh, Certainly, infectious disease, while that was not his uh, core source of fellowship, has been something that he is familiar with. And Adam recently joined our staff for our time uh, together in prayer and was just really so informative about how to think about COVID-19 and how to think about this pandemic. And so I thought this would be helpful for all of us as we're looking to protect our families, lead our families, disciple our families, but also be a good neighbor uh, to those around us. So, Adam, welcome to the Defender Podcast. Brother, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for for having me, Herbie. I really <clears throat> I really appreciate the opportunity to to share and hopefully uh, to be an encouragement for, for the body of Christ. Well, Adam, as you and I have talked and you and I know, there's, uh, there's so much, unfortunately, false information out there about this pandemic. You know, everybody now is an expert because they have a social media account and literally within two clicks can post all of their ideas. Also, we, you know, we have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, fly by night experts that now all of a sudden are posting articles. And so there's a lot of false information out there. Can you just tell us first a little bit about COVID-19, about the virus that we are looking at right now and just how is it really transmitted? Absolutely. So, um, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's so much misinformation and in part because we, we just don't know a lot about the virus. Um, we're learning more and more every day um, from our colleagues um, who are on the front lines in places like Western Europe and um, Southern Europe, specifically in Asia. <clears throat> but um, yeah, there's a lot that's being said. Um, there's a lot that's true, a lot that's untrue. So teasing out that information is really important. You know, I think um, as believers, just um, uh, understanding that information is powerful, but also interpreting that information in the context of, of the sovereignty of God is important as well. So I don't want to sow seeds of fear, but I want to have an honest conversation of, of, um, of what we do know about the virus. You know, I, I think I'd answer your question, first of all, by saying, you know, maybe by saying what it's not. And um, COVID-19 is not influenza. It's not the flu. It belongs to a different family of viruses um, that are common, called coronaviruses. But this virus in particular is new. It's novel. Um, there were no documented cases in humans until probably 
I would say human to human transmission started happening probably in November or so of last year. Um, so it does transmit similarly to the flu, um, but it's, it is more contagious. It's more easily transmissible and it does something different. It attacks the lower respiratory tract, um, you know, much more aggressively than influenza does. Um, a lot of respiratory viruses are really good at attacking the upper respiratory tract or the lower respiratory tract. This one seems to do both. Um, it's, you know, probably six, seven, eight times more uh, contagious than the flu. It has a higher mortality than the flu. Um, you know, the flu has a, an annual mortality of somewhere around 0.1%. You know, um, I'm sure you guys have seen that statistic, but 30 to 40,000 people die every year of influenza in the U.S., which is not a small number. Um, and, and generally, you know, on the average year, flu is present and probably, you know, for four to five months out of the year, probably has a prevalence of around 10% in the community. Um, this virus, um, we have no antibodies. So um, unlike influenza, you know, most of us have, most of us have antibodies who've been exposed. Our immune systems recognize the flu. Um, hopefully we we're getting vaccines for the flu every year. Um, that's not true of COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> you know, nobody on the, it has the potential to, to infect really the entire population of the earth as none of us have antibodies unless you've been previously infected. Um, you know, just really briefly again about the mortality, you know, the numbers that we're seeing um, in terms of the percent of people who are requiring hospitalization and the percent of people who are dying, those numbers have remained relatively constant, whether you look at the Asian data or the European data, or, or now what's coming out of the West Coast and New York, um, it, it seems to have around a 3% mortality. Um, you know, and I, those numbers are a little bit inflated because we don't know how many people are asymptomatic um, who, who don't um, get severe or even any clinical, you know, signs or symptoms of the disease. But, but I will say that the difference, even if you say it has a 1% mortality, um, you know, if you compare 0.1% to 1% and then you look at maybe 50% of the world becoming infected, that's a tremendous number. Um, so, so it has about a 3% mortality and then about a 15 to 20% hospitalization rate, which is sort of unheard of and definitely, you know, sets it apart from influenza. Um, the second thing I would say about the virus is it's, it's not a conspiracy. <laughs> it's not an attempt for a political party to, to gain power. Um, it's not, it wasn't created in a lab. Um, the virus has been sequenced. It's very similar to, to viruses that are found in bats and nature. We think it probably came from, from bats <clears throat> originally and then like so, so many zoonotic infections, um, you know, it found an intermediate host that humans come into contact with. And it, and it probably, you know, was in the context of a wet market, which are really common in South America um, and in Asia. So, yeah, so it made that jump into, into humans probably in uh, the end of 2019. And then as far as how does it spread, um, you know, it, it is similar to the flu. It's going to spread primarily by, um, by droplet. And, and that can happen by, you know, people coughing or sneezing um, and you coming in, into contact with those respiratory secretions. But then, you know, probably the most common way would be the, um, what's called a smear. Um, you know, the smear means of transmission would be, you know, somebody coughing in their hand and touching a door handle, which is kind of gross, but it happens. And then you come along and touch that door handle or you touch that shopping cart and then you scratch your face or rub your nose and um, you're exposed to the virus. So 
that's that's how the vast majority of people in the population are going to get infected. There is some, you know, there's a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine um, last week that that um, showed that it can actually stay airborne for about three hours. But that's that's really on, only in the context of medical procedures where it's aerosolized. So, um, and again, that's that's why it's so important that that the healthcare um, community has access to the N95s. Whereas the general public, um, they're not really at risk for uh, for getting infected by aerosolization. So, um, so um, that's that's a kind of in summary of uh, I guess what we know about the virus and how it's transmitted. Yeah, and Adam, you know, one of the things that uh, that I think people have asked or, or certainly have heard, and you know, one of the things we see because the pandemic has crippled so much of the economy is is, is folks are encouraging curbside takeout to support local food businesses and yet folks have asked well could you get contaminated either by delivery or uh by curbside pickout what 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 would you give just as a doctor who is is a little bit more uh familiar with transmission should folks be aware of or be careful about a delivery of an amazon prime package or a delivery of groceries or food or maybe a curbside pickup yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think overall there your risk is low. Um, I guess it is conceivable that your uh, the delivery you know worker could sneeze on a box and put it on your doorstep, and you might pick that box up and then rub your face. Um, I think it's unlikely. Um, I think most boxes. Um, yeah, we know that um, that the virus can live on cardboard for about a day, um, but I think the risk to the general public is low. Um, if you're really concerned about it, you know, if you don't immediately need what's inside the box, then I would recommend just taking it and maybe putting it in your garage and letting it sit for a day and, um, and then get it and open it or, or just open it and wash your hands. But I, I don't think there are going to be too many people who, who have a, a high enough, you know, viral load exposure to get sick from a, from a package. And, and the same is true of food. I, you know, um, I know a lot of restaurants are, are delivering at your doorstep. Um, we still have restaurants bringing food to the hospital, uh, kind of curbside pickup. I think the risk of getting it from food, of, of consuming it, um, is low. So I don't, I don't see any issue with, um, you know, with ordering food out. I mean, definitely be responsible because those workers, you know, the, the risk to them is greater than it is to us because they're out in the community going to multiple homes. So be mindful of that, but I think your overall risk of getting this from food or, or from a package, um, it'd be it'd be unlikely. Mm. And and knowing even on like even on that question, other things are going out throughout communities, again of of misinformation or of on false things. I mean, even last week, I you know my sweet wife found something, I sent it to you, and you said, yeah, that's not correct. Where should people be looking for real info and real updates? What are the sources that they should be going to? to make sure that what they're reading or what they're seeing on social media is, is facts and not fiction. Yeah. So, you know, the main governing bodies here for, you know, for um, disease spread and prevention, um, you know, credible sources would be, you know, the world health organization, um, anything on the who's website is going to be credible. Um, the CDC, you know, while, you know, I think they're going to learn a lot, um, through this experience, I, I do have a hard time of being critical of the CDC. They had, you know, a really difficult job here, but, um, but I think their website is up to date and it's accurate. There's good, there's good information there for healthcare workers. And there's also good information for the public. 
Um, be really careful with, with what you're seeing in the media. I mean, there's a lot being, you know, reported now about, you know, potential cures. And, um, you know, I, I saw something today about some government worker in Florida saying that you could take a hairdryer and, you know, at a temperature of 138 degrees, the proteins on the virus denature. So um, he was encouraging people to take a, a hairdryer and blow their nose and in, in their mouth. That's just not accurate. I mean, um, like, like I mentioned earlier, the virus is going to attack the lower respiratory tract. So unless you can heat your lungs up to 140 degrees, which I wouldn't recommend, um, you're not going to kill the virus. Um, so, so take it with a grain of salt, what you're hearing from non-medical people. Um, listen to this, listen to the scientists. Don't be critical. Listen to, um, you know, Dr. Fossey, listen to, listen to the experts, listen to the folks at Johns Hopkins and Harvard and Stanford. And yeah, I mean, they're not without fault and we're learning a lot of information daily, but, but go to those credible, reliable, um, sources to get information rather than Facebook rather than social media. Um, you know, so that would be my recommendation there. Just, yeah, CDC's good. Who's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so we've talked about this and, and I mean, even like you said, right, what we know about COVID-19 is new. Uh, you know, you said the first human to human uh, was probably in the very end of 2019, November, we know very little about it. I mean, we certainly have some of the brightest minds and God has given such wisdom to different minds to be able to look at this and study this. And so while what we know is still incomplete, uh, if folks are out here and maybe are worried about symptoms or how do I know that I have it or how long does it typically last, what can you say on the best info we have now that are the symptoms people should be looking for and how long does this typically last? Yeah. So, um, so, so symptoms are, you know, universally, almost everyone, like 80% of people are going to have a fever. Um, so it is possible to have it and, and not have a fever, you know, we're starting to realize that more and more um, there are folks who are asymptomatic or maybe just have a mild sore throat that might not ever get tested. But the majority of people are going to have a fever and it's a high fever and it's a persistent fever. And um, generally folks will have a fever for five, six, seven days. Um, and, you know, most people are, it's, it's a respiratory virus. So you're going to have a cough, a dry cough, generally body aches, a headache, um, maybe a sore throat. And then, you know, interestingly, we're learning more about how it affects the GI tract. And I had two patients last week that I think will test positive that presented with abdominal pain and nausea. Um, about 10% of folks will present with just GI symptoms and maybe even diarrhea. Um, I work these patients up in the emergency department under just sort of general precautions. And um, on their lung imaging, um, both had uh, bilateral pneumonia, had pneumonia in, in both lungs. So I suspect that they had COVID-19. But um, so GI symptoms are possible. Most people are going to have the, the respiratory symptoms. You know, the average incubation, um, there's a range um, from two to 14 days, but I think the accepted number right now is five days. Um, could be four, could be six, could be seven, but most people have an incubation period of about five days. And then, you know, for the, the average person who gets infected, you're looking at probably a week at the most of symptoms once you start having symptoms. 
for some people it's more brief for some people it's just a few days but for most people probably five to seven days of feeling poorly um, and sort of flu-like you know flu-like symptoms um, and then you know we know that um, a, a percentage of the population probably around 15 percent will go on to develop what's called um, COVID-19 syndrome or coronavirus syndrome and and what that is is it's a it's an immune response as you begin to um, as the body begins to fight the virus in the lower respiratory tract, um, you send white blood cells and you get mucus that, that plugs the airway. Well, the body senses that inflammation and it, and it produces this protein that's an inflammatory protein that signals the immune system to attack. So you get massive amounts of inflammation. So this, this coronavirus um, syndrome is really... Um, it is caused by the virus, but it's really an immunologic, you know, response to the virus. And those are the people who go on to develop severe, you know, respiratory failure, um, needing, you know, ventilatory support, mechanical ventilation. And then we're also seeing that a lot of these patients are developing um, heart problems, um, uh, kidney problems, liver problems. Um, so it, the virus at that point really begins to, to attack multiple systems, but that's in the minority of, of patients. Um, still a good chunk, but, but, but nonetheless a minority. Um, so those are, the, those are the general symptoms. Yeah, and so I know many families are listening to the podcast and they've got kids that are immunocompromised or that they've either brought home to adoption or maybe they're fostering. Uh, you know, and certainly I know these parents on heightened uh, alert and you know this COVID-19 couldn't have hit especially the southern United States at any worse of a time because not only are we fighting the remains of the flu but now we've got pollen everywhere and yeah. so allergies are coming up if you're if you're talking to a parent who is both concerned I don't I want to make sure I'm not manifesting symptoms that could compromise my child but also I want to make sure that other children in my household aren't or maybe my children what would, again, I know you've said the high fever, the dry cough, um, what, would you say those are the things that they need to really be alerted to if they see that in their household? Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be unlikely that, um, that the kids would, would just have, you know, allergies, you know, you know allergy mediated, you know, just rhinitis or, or inflammation of the upper airway, the nasopharynx, that's going to cause clear secretions, um, you know, watery, itchy eyes, um, maybe a dry kind of hacky cough, um, but those secretions are going to be clear. Um, with the virus, initially the secretions can be clear, but you would expect as the body responds with um, a different type of uh, white blood cell that you're going to get some yellow, some green discharge. Um, you know, you're going to have body aches. You're going to have headache. You're going to have other symptoms than um, than itchy itchiness and itchy nose and itchy eyes are, are, a, are a sign or a symptom of, um, of histamine release, which is the body's response to allergies. You really shouldn't, while you can get some sneezing with a virus, you really shouldn't have a lot of itching involved. So I would, I would expect their kids to have other symptoms. Um, you know, one of the, if you can say that there is a blessing um, about this virus, um, it, it is that it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to affect kids all that severely. Um, even I would say, you know, compromised children. I, I've not heard reports of any children um, dying from this, which is, which is quite remarkable. Um, um, so not to say you shouldn't be concerned because the children can, you know, serve as a, um, as a carrier and expose adults, vulnerable adults um, to the, to the virus. But 
for the most part, kids, kids do fine. Um, and I would expect that they would have other symptoms than just a runny nose and a cough. So let, let's talk about, um, the social distancing. Cause I know that's something that obviously we are practicing now. We've been told to practice, uh, even before we were practicing, it was something, uh, that was, that was talked about and, and called for, uh, if most of us aren't really even in danger, um, may, maybe most of us don't have the virus now. And even if we did, we're not in danger. Why is social distancing so important, both as a, as a greater society, but then even back towards as a believer, why is it so important that we take social distancing uh, serious? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you're right. Most of us are going to be fine. Um, a large percentage of people are going to have minimal symptoms or several days of symptoms. Um, for those who are showing up to be tested, you know, probably 85% will not require anything other than maybe a decongestant at home and a cough suppressant. Um, but we have, um, you know, a pretty robust um, uh, knowledge base at this point and um, evidence to, that would, that would, you know, that would essentially say that these vulnerable populations like the elderly are particularly uh, susceptible to the virus. And um, not only that, but having a bad outcome from the virus, um, you know, in, in folks over the age of 80, the mortality is around 15%. Um, even for people who are young and healthy, I would say between the ages of, you know, say 22, 25 and 45, who have no comorbidities, you still have a 15, around a one in five and one in seven percent chance of being hospitalized. Again, which is not a small percentage. So I think, I think this kind of false belief that young, healthy people do fine um, is really, you know, driving a lot of, um, a lot of people, you know, who are, who are getting sick and having bad outcomes. And you have to think of it, um, you know, if you go out in the community, you have a sore throat, maybe some body aches, you go to Trader Joe's or wherever, and you grab a shopping cart, um, you know, cough on your hand, touch the shopping cart, and then you go home, you're going to start feeling better in a couple of days. But if maybe a 70 year old comes behind you, who's got, you know, some lung disease or what, what have you, and, and touches that same shopping cart, and they've got a they've got a 10 to 15% risk of dying from this. And we, you know, we've got to protect the community. We've got to, we've got to have, you know, in the West, I think we're, we're guilty of this, you know, kind of fierce, you know, independent type um, mindset. We have to think about our brothers and sisters and our mothers and our fathers who are living with us in relationship. We have to respect them. We have to love them. And as a believer, um, and, and I heard you say this, a few days ago, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the best way that we can love our neighbor is by distancing ourselves ourselves from them. Um, because, you know, if you go out and you infect four people, um, one of those patients, there's a high likelihood is going to end up in the hospital. But then say each of those patients, each of those people go out and infect four to five other people, somebody's going to die. Um, and you're going to get better and you're not going to know it. So, um, so, so it's important. It's really important. You know, early in, in any epidemic or pandemic, early on surveillance and testing is so important. It's the only, really the only way to stop the spread of diseases by identifying people and then isolating them. 
we're kind of beyond that here in the States. Um, there's this big push for testing, but um, once you have community transmission, you know, testing is not as important. So um, our greatest weapon that we have now to protect, to protect our families, to protect our friends, um, to protect strangers that we've been commanded to love, you know, to consider others as better than ourselves. Um, our greatest weapon is social or physical distancing. Um, so we need to, we need to listen, you know, to the experts. We need to listen to the government. Um, we need to be obedient. We need to stay at home. Well, I know kind of my next question is, is kind of even a little bit about what you've talked about, um, that it's so infectious and, uh, so many people could get this. Uh, and I know that certainly none of us know the answer to the question, how long will this virus last and how many people will really be affected? I mean, we have models and, you know, John Hopkins and Harvard continued to put out models for how many people could be if we don't do this. Uh, I saw a, a research out there about when the, you know, the, the moment of demarcation was for each state as to when they should shut everything down. And all of these are, are statistics for sure. But ultimately, brother, like, what does this mean for our hospitals? What does this mean for our medical professionals who are on the front lines fighting the virus, like you, an emergency room doctor? Uh, what does this mean for our hospitals? And how, as Christians, can we be praying for hospital staff and praying for doctors? Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. And so, I mean, I think as far as, you know, backing up just a little, how long, how long it'll last, it, um, you know, I think one of two things has to happen before we see a dramatic decrease in cases. And um, the first, the, the first, you know, kind of ideal answer there would be we get a vaccine. Right. But um, there are already some human trials going on, but that's going to be at least a year. I mean, 18 months would be more accurate, but I think at the minimum a year. So how, how do we deal with this for a year before there's mass distribution of vaccines? Um, the, the second thing that could happen that, that might slow this down is what's called herd immunity, where the majority of people have been infected and have antibodies. Um, and this is, you know, not, not to get into a different subject here, but this is what people who don't vaccinate their kids are, are relying on herd immunity. Um, so, and, and experts think that, that probably you would need set around 70%, maybe 70 to 80% of the population to get infected. So, um, you know, to kind of jump forward into your, um, your question about what does this mean for hospitals? If, if you're looking at, you know, probably 40 to 50% of the planet, maybe 70% of the planet eventually becoming infected, that can happen you know, with good physical distancing measures in place. That can happen over the course of a year or that can happen over the course of a few months. And what we saw in Italy was they put these measures in place, but community transmission was so widespread that it was too late. So there were so many folks that were, they were already isolated in their homes that, that had been infected that um, at that point there was, there was no slowing it down. And, um, and it's, you know, unfortunately they're still in the midst of a, of a war in Northern Italy. Um, so you have 20, 30, 40, 50% of the population that gets infected in a matter of a month or a matter of weeks. And that's when you start seeing the mortality rate skyrocket. You know, in Italy, it jumped to 7% because the healthcare system failed. Um, 
I wouldn't say it fell, but it, it almost collapsed. Um, and then you have the secondary sort of fallout that is they can't treat strokes. They can't treat heart, heart attacks. You know, routine things that would get admitted to the hospital are not getting admitted. Um, so you have a, you know, an even higher mortality um, because you're unable to treat the other sick people in the community. So, so really what we want to do is, is cause this thing to sort of smolder. And what you would hope happens is that there's sort of a biphasic or triphasic, um, you know, peak where you get maybe 20% of the population gets infected and then it tapers off over the summer um, because of humidity and heat and other things. Um, again, we don't really know how that's going to affect the virus, but there's um, some people are saying that, that they think it'll taper off over the summer and I hope they're right. But um, then you would expect another peak, probably, you know, August, September, maybe a dip into November, December, and then back up into January, February, March. Um, and at that point, you might have 2020 or 30, 2020, where you would get, you know, a majority of the population infected, and then you would start to see some herd immunity, or maybe a vaccine. So that, that's ideal. So you're going to be, you're going to see it sporadic transmission. Um, the hospitals are not going to be overwhelmed. We're going to be just taking care of these patients for the next year. And then you're going to have um, you know, a vaccine or herd immunity that, that kind of takes over. Um, if, if, if we don't do a good job of physical and social distancing, um, I, I just want to share some numbers. Um, I did this um, the other morning when I, when I addressed staff um, at Lifeline, but to make this practical, you know, we've got about 220,000 people in the Athens, Clark County um, catchment area uh, folks that utilize our healthcare resources in Athens. We have two hospitals in Athens. Um, if you assume, um, let's assume a low prevalence. So like influenza, say 10% of the population gets COVID-19, um, which I think is a sort of a low estimate, but just for the sake of making the numbers easy, that would be about 22,000 people um, in our area that, that would get infected. Um, if the 15% rule holds true for us, like it is in New York and Washington and, and other places in Europe, um, that would be around 3,300 people that would require hospitalization. Um, you know, we're in the sort of flu respiratory season right now. Our hospitals generally operate around 60 to 70% capacity this time of year. So you have about 30, maybe 30% 30 of beds free right now for about 3,300 people. Well, that's probably a couple hundred beds, if that. Um, and then to sort of extrapolate those numbers and go even further, if 5% of those patients are critical care, which Italy is saying 10%, but um, say 5% of those patients are critical care patients requiring an ICU, that's about 1,100 ICU patients. We have less than 50 beds in Athens. So if we get 1,100 critically ill patients in three to four weeks, that's not sustainable. Um, there's no way that we can um, treat those patients adequately, that we can ventilate those patients, um, which is unfortunately, um, you know, what we're seeing in Italy. So um, it would be a tremendous, um, it would be more than a burden on the healthcare system. It would, it, I mean, it could potentially cause the whole system just to collapse. And I don't say that to, to make people fearful, but Th those are the numbers, and um, that's why it's it's so important that we socially and physically um, um, stay distant from one another right now. And we and we see 
you know, maybe a biphasic or, or triphasic peak rather than a single spike. Um, and, you know, as far as how you can encourage healthcare workers, um, I think text messages, I've, I've gotten texts for the last couple of weeks from people I haven't spoken with in a long time. And it's been so refreshing. I, this morning, even, I got a text message um, uh, that was just scripture. And it was an encur- it was encouragement. Um, so I think sending truth, um, speaking truth to healthcare workers, speaking truth to their families. There's a lot of fear among spouses, among children. You know, we can't. I can't really shelter in place. You know, I have um, I have a duty. I have a job where where I go. You know, to the hospital and I see these patients. And you know, the healthcare community in the states is unified. We're not going to quit our jobs. We're not going to. We're not going to stand down. We're going to be on the front lines. We're going to take care of these patients. So pray against fear. Um, pray for boldness for the believers. Um, you know, probably in the last hundred years, there hasn't been a better opportunity to share the gospel than right now. Um, there, is a, there is a pandemic of fear in the world right now. Um, you know, whenever we're faced with, suffering and disease, we think about death and our own mortality. And that's a good thing because Jesus has a good word for those who are stuck in the shadow of death and fear, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. He's got a good word for those who are fearful of dying. Um, That though we die, we will live in him, right? And the world, the world needs to hear that message. And we have a role to play not just as healthcare workers to share the gospel with our fearful patients, to pray with families, to share the gospel with other healthcare workers who aren't believers, but, but even the non-medical people have a role to play in this, to share the gospel boldly. Um, So those are some practical, um, those are some practical ways that you can, that you can pray, you know, pray for healthcare workers and their families. And then I think, you know, just, just take it seriously because, when I, when I catch wind of people who are dismissive, uh, who are comparing this to influenza, who are saying that it's, you know, politically motivated, they're putting all, you know, when I catch wind of that, especially people who have a, a voice that, that folks listen to, that's really frustrating for me because they're putting all of us at risk and they're jeopardizing, you know, life as we know it. They're jeopardizing the system. Um, and they're not loving their neighbors. They're not loving their neighbors by, by propagating and spreading that message. Um, yeah, and Adam, we even have talked about you and I that we uh, the only really win for this as a society is if we look back and say, "Man, we really overreacted to this." Because any other answer means that we didn't get it in time. Well, if we look back and say, "Man, they were right," then it means that uh, we didn't we didn't shelter in place soon enough. If we look back and say, "Man, they were they didn't even know how bad this was, and we're really in a bad shape." So just just thinking as we close about believers, and obviously, I know you're passionate for global mission. You're passionate for seeing believers here at home go around to other continents. Uh, you and Whitney have, have traveled extensively for your fellowships uh, to other parts of the world and have been so engaged in missions and medical missions. Mm. I guess two questions on that. And first is, you know, again, your best guess, how long do we need to stay sheltered in place? And then second, once we 
once we are kind of released from our homes and uh, even in a year in a post-pandemic world are kind of released to go back to the nations, um, how should believers see global travel in the future of international missions? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for the next year or so, there's not going to be a lot of international travel. I think as far as how long we're going to be, you know, sheltering in place, it's dependent on how well we do it the first time. You know, if we do this well for a month or a few weeks and we don't see a spike um, as we get some, again, there's no real solid evidence that the weather, that this virus is going to be affected by the weather, but um, but we do know that other coronaviruses and, and the flu are affected um, by humidity and temperature. Um, I think you're gonna see some, probably some loosening of how strict we have to shelter. I'm hopeful of that this summer. Um, and then I think that probably in the fall, we'll have a season where we have to become strict again. Um, and potentially, I hope not, but potentially have to shut down businesses again. So I think it's going to kind of ebb and flow. Um, I don't, I'm hopeful that we don't have to be this strict for a year. And I think that would be devastating for a lot of people and for the economy, but, um, but we need to do it now. And if we do it well now, then I think you'll see some relaxing over the summer. As far as how it will affect us going internationally, you know, post pandemic, you know, Whitney and I were talking about that this morning. Um, Suffering, <laughs> um, suffering is the great equalizer, right? So we, for those of you who have traveled overseas or maybe overseas right now, um, suffering is a way of life in a lot of places. Um, and there's plenty of suffering here in the States. It looks different. Though. And in a lot of ways, we feel almost immune to, um, you know, to some forms of suffering, right? Like, we're not, um, you know, we're immune, it seems at least, from, from war here on our home soil, from hunger, um, from some forms of suffering, from diseases that are easily treatable. We have the blessing of good health care, of good health care system. So as we, as we all suffer in this season, I think it, I think it you know, su suffering crosses socioeconomic boundaries, it crosses ethnic boundaries. I think it potentially helps us relate to a suffering world, I think. And I'm hopeful that it will open the door for us to travel more boldly into hard places post pandemic. Um, it will, it'll, I'm hopeful that it increases our faith in the sovereignty of God. And um, this illusion of safety that we have in the West would be overcome by um, lives that are completely sold out for the message of the gospel and for the sovereignty of God and, and caring for us and meeting our needs. Um, so my hope is that this season of suffering would embolden believers and that we would see as things calm down and it becomes safe to travel on airplanes and, and go to difficult places. Um, there are countries that are going to be affected much, um, much more dramatically in the United States. Um, from this, unfortunately, I think there are a lot of impoverished countries and um, and places in Asia and Africa that this could potentially um, have long-standing effects on their economy and then also with the loss of life. So we need to be willing to go to help to restore in that restoration phase. Um, 
and set aside our fears, set aside our worries and go in confidence and boldness for the gospel. So that's my hope that, that, um, that believers would be spurred to action through this and that we would go more boldly with the gospel. Amen. Well, doctor, we are grateful for you, brother. Uh, grateful for even the resolve, as you've stated, that as our medical professionals are committed to staying on the front lines and fighting this. And uh, certainly we have hope as believers uh, that this virus is not the one that ultimately will kill the soul. And we already have the antibodies against that, the gospel of Christ Jesus. And so we pray for you um, and we pray for other believing doctors and nurses that as you even have opportunities on the front lines to minister to patients through the hope of the gospel and to minister to professionals and to colleagues the hope of the gospel, that as we've said, that uh, while COVID-19 might change the way we live, that would also alter the eternities of many people for the good that they would come to saving knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So thank you for this and for this ministry to our families. And we appreciate your family and we appreciate everything you guys are doing. Amen. Thank you, brother. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast. <music>